Honor the victims, celebrate the heroes. That's Genius Book Publishing's approach to true crime. Covering some of the most important cases in crime worldwide, our books never glorify the killers. From the Melissa Witt case all the way to the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac, if you're looking for solid, meticulously researched, thrilling true crime, look no further than Genius Book Publishing's catalog of titles. Visit GeniusTrueCrime.com for the best true crime books available. Also available on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. I'm Alicia Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets. Today we're going to tell you a story about a death fetisher. Surprise. His name is Kevin Ray Underwood. He's from Purcell, Oklahoma. And Kevin was really outspoken about his strange affliction, as the fetishers would say. I would say about his mental illness. He kept an online blog called Strange Things Are Afoot at the Circle K. Oh, that's creepy. It sounds like he probably covered a lot of topics on this blog, but in the blog, he actually describes himself as a single, bored, lonely man that has dangerously weird fantasies, which I would agree. Yes, death fetish is dangerous and super weird, and if I may, disgusting. I second that. I just get chills talking about it. It's just awful. It's horrible. Yeah. And he was not shy about opening up on his blog about his obsession. In addition to talking about his fantasies, he also described himself as a depressed and socially incompetent person. So that's kind of sad. It is sad, but it's like, Almost refreshing to know that a death fetisher is actually telling the truth about who and what they are, because that's pretty rare. Yeah, I guess this guy is a little more self-aware than some of the other death fetish predators. Yeah, maybe more aware than our buddy Barry Smith. Yeah. So Kevin would write a lot of blog entries, okay? And these blog entries are just painstaking accounts of his days off and what he is spending his time doing. And most of his time was spent just in front of his computer. So he would talk a lot about that, about how he spent all his time playing role-playing games on the computer. And the game that he liked to play was called Kingdom of Loathing. I've never heard of that. Have you? No, I actually haven't. I'm going to have to look that up. That's interesting. That's interesting. And it makes me, I don't know, it sparks a thought like, I wonder how many of these fetishers actually loathe themselves because of this desire that they have, which is sad. I mean, because it is something that I think would be hard to reconcile in your mind. You know, I think some of them get to the point where they think that it's okay. But I wonder how many as they grow from the early years on through adulthood just kind of loathe themselves for this. 
Well, I feel like that'd be a really easy place to fall into if you're not seeking help for these kinds of intrusive, dangerous thoughts. And so I don't think it's necessarily wrong of Kevin to be a person that has these thoughts, but it is wrong of him to choose to do nothing about them or even worse, choose to go into death fetish forums, go into role-playing games and continue, I guess, just growing these obsessive thoughts and fantasies rather than doing something to take care of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he was struggling because even though he had all these strange and alarming admissions on his blog, according to any of the reports that I could find, he had no prior history of serious mental illness, nothing that was officially documented yet. And so I feel like he was sharing some of that with the world on his blog. And some of the things he did share were his social phobias. And he also talked about some alleged medication that he had tried at some point in his life and some therapy that consumed his life, kind of to deal with his depression and some other things. The reports that I found and the things that I read didn't really go into a a lot of detail. I just don't think that the emergence of the darkness of this mental illness that he had really came to light until he was well into all this time he was spending on the internet. That kind of blows my mind that he was seeing a therapist. And it sounds like there was an event where he started to go to therapy for a specific reason and that that reason was not death fetish and that he didn't think that he should bring that up to take care of that problem too. Yeah, I think he was overwhelmed potentially, but his blog did include the event that you're talking about because he had these crippling periods of depression in his life. And he says on his blog that it started in college when a love interest of his died in a car accident. So I think he had grief and depression and all of these things happening. Yeah, that's right. And according to his blog, he had admitted that he was off his medication at some point and that his thoughts were growing more and more bizarre. And so it kind of sounds like this blog was like a cry for help. That's what it feels like to me. I think he was reaching out in the only way that he knew how. Yeah. And on his blog, he would opine about what he might be capable of doing and what others might think of him if he acted out his bizarre fantasies. So I'm going to give you a little picture of what that sounds like, okay? Okay. In one entry, he wrote, quote, I'm afraid the cops would come into my apartment see all the knives and swords and horror movies and commentaries about serial killers on my DVD rack and suspect me. And Oh, wow. That's, so, that's scary. Yeah, that's like an admission of guilt already. Wow. It makes me wonder, what are they going to suspect him of? Right, because you look at true crime. It's a topic that captivates a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. And I'm not sure that you know, cops would be that suspicious of somebody having DVDs of documentaries about psychology or serial killers. And most people do have some sort of knife in their house, you know, but it's interesting that he's like putting all this together as a case against himself. It just seems like he already feels guilty. Yeah. And it's probably partially to do with these dark fantasies he was having. And who knows what other things that he may have done leading up to this. I mean, a lot of times you see 
these guys will end up killing animals and do other things like that on a smaller scale. So there could have been some of that too. That's just me throwing that out there. We don't know that for a fact. Yeah. So he's writing in this way and, you know, it really sounds like a cry for help to me. I'll say that again. It really does. But apparently whoever was reading this blog, not any of his readers, not his mom who just lived across town or any of his neighbors, his co-workers, his managers at Carl's Jr., which he worked at a Carl's Jr., which is a burger restaurant. Or he was also working at Gridger's Discount Foods, that job he had with another relative, an aunt. And so nobody in his life that was seeing him day to day, nor his internet friends and readers, seemed to recognize this cry for help or that this was a real problem going on for this quiet man. And if they did recognize that, they certainly didn't do a damn thing about it. Yeah, that's disturbing. Because they didn't do anything about it, you know, he continued down this path. And on April 12th of 2006, Kevin Underwood developed this plan in his depraved mind to carry out his bizarre fantasies that revolved around something incredibly horrific. And that was the sexual assault, murder, and cannibalism of another human. Wow. And... Oddly, unlike other death fetish predators we have covered, Kevin Underwood didn't have one particular victim in mind. Okay, he wasn't obsessing over one particular person. He wasn't doing manips of one particular person. It was not like that. Instead, according to authorities, Kevin had decided that the first person to walk past his apartment that day would be his victim. That is so creepy. Like he just woke up and chose murder. Yeah, that's really bizarre. And to our horror, that victim, that person that walked past his apartment first, just happened to be a 10-year-old little girl named Jamie Rose Bolin. That takes my breath away. That makes me sad. It's so sad. I cannot handle the cases that are about harming children. It just puts me into a blind rage. I think it's so disgusting to rip away that innocence from somebody at that age. It's, it's just, it's atrocious. Well, it's sad that kids are innocent. It's heartbreaking to me. I have young kids at home. I know I've mentioned that before. And so just thinking of harm coming to them at the hands of a death fetisher makes my heart hurt, but it also fills me with rage. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. My girls are pretty young. You know, my oldest is only nine where she's at in her development, like she wouldn't see any of that coming. You know, if a man came out of an apartment building and wanted to show her something about paleontology, she would, she'd be very interested. It wouldn't be that hard to trick somebody in that age category. You're right. Wouldn't. And it just scares me that children get targeted for any kind of crime. And really, that's just what an act of cowardice. Like how pathetic are you that you would choose to hone in on somebody of that age. It just really says a lot about what's going on for a fetisher who's going to choose a child. I agree with you completely. So Jamie Rose, just giving a little background information about her, she lived with her father, Curtis, in an apartment across the breezeway from Kevin's downstairs unit. So she was in the neighborhood and she was in fifth grade at the time. 
she had rode past Kevin's apartment on her bicycle. And he saw her outside and he got to it. He went out and he managed to lure her inside with the promise that she could see his pet rat named Freya. And he also said that he'd put on a SpongeBob cartoon for her. So this is just evil. Yeah, that makes me really sad. My kids love SpongeBob. And And for my kids, it would be the pet rat. They'd be like, you have a pet rat? Sweet. It's just, he's despicable, really. So, of course, Jamie's like, yeah, I want to see that. Let me in. And once she gets inside, Kevin just changes it up so fast. And he winds up battering her in the head with a wooden cutting board. Goes on to choke her and cut her throat. And he was doing this because he wanted to decapitate her. He thought that would do the trick. So he had intended that. He wanted to experience decapitating another person. What a creep. And then he did something completely unthinkable. Kevin sexually violated Jamie's dead body. That makes me so sad. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible that Kevin was struggling with these death fetish fantasies and he had so many of them. You know, we talk about how there's these different categories and, you know, some some people will be only into belly stabs and some people will be only into cannibalism. But Kevin had many layers here. You know, you can see he sexually violated her dead body afterwards. So he was into necrophilia. He was into decapitation. He choked her. He bludgeoned her. He hit her in the head. There's just so many levels here. It was like he's checking all those boxes. Yeah. It's just like the violence overtook him and he just went crazy with everything you could think of on this poor little child. I just, I don't understand him. The second they were alone, he started in. Like this poor innocent girl, she was dead and gone before anybody even realized that she was missing. All because Kevin had death fetish fantasies that were unchecked. That's awful. I'm so sad for her family. Terrible. It's terrible. And what he did next is equally despicable. The depraved but calculated fetisher placed Jamie's tiny body in a plastic tub which he taped shut and hid in his closet. And then, like a madman, he carefully dismantled the bicycle she'd been riding that day, and he hid the parts beneath his bed, just as the search for Jamie Rose began. So he was doing everything he could to hide this crime. And so he does all this, and then he sits in his nasty, fetisher apartment, and he listens. This part makes me want to cry. He listens to the neighbors as they're calling for the missing little girl, that he had just murdered. Like they're walking by the apartment in that complex, you know, screaming, Jamie Rose, Jamie Rose. And he's just sitting there knowing what he had done. That's unbelievable. Oh, it's chilling. And he had no remorse, clearly no remorse. He was absolutely a predator through and through. So disgusting. Like I just want to strangle this guy. He truly was a predator. And so... The community is looking for Jamie Rose. You know how that goes. When a kid's missing, it's like all hands on deck. You need to find that child. Yeah. And two days into the search on April 14th, police took notice of Kevin Underwood. 
he suddenly showed up to help volunteer in the search for Jamie Rose. So he had not been helping in the beginning, which obviously, you know, you hear people calling out for a child in your apartment. Usually you're going to come out and help. So I'm sure that looked a little funny that he wasn't around during the beginning, but then he pops up two days later. And that just, Poli- I can't, I can't even with this guy. I mean, I, I can't imagine the anger that his family feels towards him, but I, I'm sorry. I'm just getting outraged by this guy. Yeah. So he comes along and he inserts himself into the investigation like they do. Police stop him near a roadblock that was set up near the apartment complex because, according to the reports, he was acting suspicious. So the police are on to him, and they're a a little bit alarmed, and they go ahead and take him back to the station for questioning, which is amazing that they were able to sense that. I wonder just how awkward he was in person, because it had to have been something like that for them to want to take him in. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so while he was there at the station, he told the police that the last time he saw Jamie Rose was the day that she disappeared and that he saw her riding her bike and wearing a short sleeve blue shirt. But this was actually a lie because all the other witnesses had reported that they were certain that Jamie Rose had been wearing a pink shirt to school that day. So what, he thought he was throwing them off the trail by lying about the shirt? Yeah, I mean, it it seems like a weird thing to lie about. He must have had some sort of plan about that, though. But then in a strange twist, Kevin randomly tells the police that his father was a butcher and that he, so himself, talking about himself, he's like, my father was a butcher. And... I have fantasized about butchering an actual human being. Ooh. So I just, like that, I am floored by this because I can almost picture him there in the questioning room, you know? He's told them a lie and then he's all nervous and he just does that thing that people do when they're nervous sometimes, which is just that they can't stop their chatter, you know? Right. I can picture him in there just like nervously blurting things out. And he's obviously thinking about what he did to Jamie Rose and how exciting that was for him. So it doesn't surprise me that his mind is on butchering and fantasies while he's in there giving his report of when he last saw Jamie Rose. He's just sick. Yeah, he was. And because all signs pointed to Kevin somehow being involved in the disappearance of little Jamie Rose, authorities obtained a search warrant for his apartment. And when I was researching this, one of the things that I discovered is that that interrogation had gone very badly for him. I think there was a lot of things that he said and did during that interrogation that made them pretty certain that he was involved. And that's how they got the search warrant. That makes sense. Yeah. So they get in there and the police find immediately the taped up plastic tub that held Jamie Rose's remains. And they went in there looking for this tub because one of the things that he told him in the interrogation was that he had a taped up tub for his comic books and that he had taped it up so moisture wouldn't get to his comic books. That's weird. And I think that that set off some red flags for investigators, too. So they went looking for it and found it immediately. And so they've got the horror of finding her in this tub. I think you're going to find this interesting, LaDonna. As they took Kevin into custody 
the day that they did find Jamie Rose's body, Kevin actually started hyperventilating. And he's quoted as saying, I'm going to burn in hell. I hope he does burn in hell. Yeah. So this is just an awful story. I mean, awful, awful, awful. They find her dismantled bicycle under his bed. And then they find something even more frightening. They find skewers, a meat tenderizer, numerous knives and swords, rolls of duct tape. They found the wooden cutting board he had used to bludgeon Jamie Rose. Okay, so it he still just had kept everything? He kept everything. And on the cutting board, there was DNA evidence. They knew that he had used that to actually hit her over the head. So I'm assuming it was blood. And he just kept it like it was nothing. That's sick. It's sick. They also found a video about serial killers. And from what I understand, this video was glorifying serial killers. And so I think it was pretty disturbing, you know, to authorities. So they're trying to process all this. And at the same time, they come across his blog, the one that you mentioned earlier, Strange Things Are Afoot at the Circle K. And they also found his MySpace account. And it had all kinds of creepy information, okay, including this motto. Are you ready for it? Yes. Like what you like, enjoy what you enjoy, and don't take crap from anybody. So police later read that, and that's kind of creepy to them because they know that he enjoys death and necrophilia and cannibalism. It's his mantra to not feel guilty about his interests. Yes, exactly. Like what you like. They also found something else that he'd written on his MySpace account. It said, if you were a cannibal, what would you wear to dinner? And he answered himself when he posed that question. He answered himself and said, I would wear the skin of last night's main course. That is so creepy. I mean, like the element of him talking to himself makes it even more creepy. Well, I mean, my imagination gets the best of me here, but I would assume that nobody else was engaging with him on this. Who else was going to answer that about being a cannibal? People were noping out. And they, they read it and said, no, thank you. Yeah, I was like, no, I'm not answering that. But according to the then police chief, David Tompkins, they said this about Kevin. He appears to have been part of a plan to kidnap a person, rape them, torture them, kill them, cut off their head, drain the body of blood, rape the corpse, eat the corpse, and then dispose of the organs and bones. So they had found information that led them to believe that he had every intention to do all of these things. These disgusting death fetish predators, they're all about that. They're all about planning out how they're going to enact their fantasies on other people. And Kevin Underwood just happened to be like four death fetishers rolled into one, you know, because he wanted to kidnap, wanted to rape, wanted necrophilia, wanted to behead, wanted to drain the blood. Like he was so many different kinds of fetishers all wrapped up into one. It's just disgusting. Yeah, it is. It's awful. The fact that he did this to a child, anybody, but to a child, I just... This might be the worst case that we've ever covered, you know, just for the level of disregard for human life and it being combined with this being a child. It it just, it's disgusting. Yeah. And I'm so thankful that this case went to trial in March of 2008. And Kevin Underwood's defense 
they tried to just contend that Kevin had some mental issues, which obviously he did, but they were trying to say, well, he suffers from bipolar. Yeah, he's got sexual problems. His blog had actually revealed that he was pretty much a virgin. So they were trying to use that in their favor and say that he had crippling social phobia. So they were really trying to play up that Kevin was a victim himself of all these problems. So they're just basically insulting anybody else that has bipolar disorder or depression and saying, hey, this can happen and you might cannibalize somebody. No, that's bullshit. I think it's really important that you point that out because people with social phobias don't just go and chop up a child. That is not part of having a social phobia. It's not a sexual problem. It's not a common symptom of bipolar or of being a virgin either. Exactly. So there were grisly photos of the crime scene that were thankfully admitted as evidence, along with sex toys, a ceremonial dagger. So those items did not at all help Kevin's case. His defense strategy got some big holes poked into it. And there was also a videotaped confession that Kevin had given. So at this point, his fate was pretty much sealed. Well, he gave a taped confession. What the heck? Yeah. And in this video, in the confession, Kevin tells the investigators, well, yeah, I lured the girl into my apartment on April 12th, 2006, and I beat her over the head with a cutting board. I suffocated her. I sexually assaulted her. And I tried to cut off her head with my decorative dagger. Wow. I don't think that leaves any room for any kind of confusion. I can't believe that he even had a defense attorney. What kind of defense? He said he did it. Yeah, it should be done there. I feel like Kevin's defense attorneys knew that. It sounds like they tried to get him out of this, but they never did try to dispute the fact that he had killed Jamie Rose. Instead, they just argued in a different direction that his life should be spared because he was bullied as a child and because he suffered from mental and emotional abuse from his parents. So they were really trying to play a victim angle for Kevin. Yeah, he's not the victim. Jamie Rose was the victim. The jury was on board here, too. They were enraged by how ridiculous even the thought of that defense was. And they had this horrific mountain of evidence about this terrible crime. So it's no surprise that it took them less than a half hour to convict Kevin of this heinous crime. Good. Yeah, I think it was pretty clear. Everybody was in agreement that this needed to be dealt with very seriously. So the jury chose a death sentence rather than life in prison. Good. That's what he deserves. Absolutely. And on April 3rd, 2008, McLean County District Judge Candace Blaylock ordered that Underwood's execution be done by lethal injection. Good. I'm clapping. That's exactly he what was, he deserves. I mean, he killed a little girl. He absolutely deserved the lethal injection. As he was handed down his sentence, it was reported that Kevin showed no emotion whatsoever, just completely deadpan. He did not give two about what he had done to poor little Jamie Rose. That's really sad. I can't imagine how 
terrible that made her family feel. Yeah, he was an absolute monster. Yeah, he was. This case, it actually gives me nightmares. Uh, and, and we kind of touched on it, but I think it's because it involves a child. And all I can think about is how terrified Jamie Rose must have felt. I can't even begin to fathom what she went through. I mean, it's awful. Yeah, that's a truly a bait and switch. From her mindset, she was riding along on her bike having a good day. And then she got the opportunity to watch SpongeBob and meet a rat. Like, how exciting. And it just all came crashing down so quickly. It sticks with me, this case. And I think one of the things that makes me so angry is because I firmly believe that if someone had intervened with Kevin and had gotten him some help, that maybe Jamie Rose would still be alive. I mean, I could be wrong, but there were telltale signs that he was not right. And I've got some examples of those. Like, for instance, Kevin had frequently gone to get his haircut and he would talk to this worker at Supercuts in Oklahoma City about cooking organs. Oh, like human? human? Yeah, human organs. He openly admitted he was interested in cannibalism. And she did nothing. I wonder if he was going on Dulcet Girls or the Cannibal Cafe and swapping organ meat recipes as they do. Maybe. But, I mean, she continued to cut his hair. I mean, like, oh, well, there's the cannibal guy. I mean, really? Tell somebody. That sort of shocked me. And then... His co-workers at the grocery store nicknamed him Zombie Kevin because he acted so strangely and said such strange things and talked about cannibalism and just weird things. And they did nothing about it. And then another co-worker from a fast food restaurant that he also worked at, they described him as a little creepy. And just he, a little? Yeah. So he's a little creepy with an extreme interest in death, cannibalism, and serial killers. Just like he's working at a fast food restaurant and you're not concerned that he's talking about cannibalism. I mean, that's creepy. It's more than a little creepy. Yeah. And then another coworker comes forward, right? And said, okay, Kevin used to make all kinds of sick jokes and it would kind of scare them. And he would say things like, I'm going to snap and kill someone. And then he would laugh this weird <laughs> laugh. Okay. And so that would freak out the coworkers. But they still did nothing. So it just feels like to me that there are all these warning signs and that everyone turned a blind eye to it. I mean, I agree. And I think this is a good time to talk about. So if you run into one of these death fetishers in your community and you hear something like this, LaDonna, what do you think is the best course of action here? Because I think I truly maybe this is delusional of me. But I truly would like to believe that most people are good and that they just don't know what to do sometimes. And so I think, you know, if you're having an experience like this where a coworker is talking to you about how he wants to cook people's organ meat, what do you think is the right course of action, LaDonna? I think that it's just really important that you make a record of it and you report it. So if you've got a supervisor, you go to your supervisor and say, hey, I'm concerned. And every time that it's mentioned, you document it and you turn it over to somebody that has more power than you do, right? And I I just think that's really important. And if you're the supervisor and you're concerned that he's behaving strangely, I think it's okay to notify the police or his family. I mean, you owe that to the community. And 
And you may think that your little report isn't going to go anywhere, and it's possible that maybe it won't. I've had a lot of experiences reporting things like this since we started this podcast, and it's true. You may call the police, and they may not be able to give you the information about what they do afterwards or what somebody's record is. Because that's just uncouth. It doesn't follow the chain of command to inform you about what they will do or what they know. But you could be reporting some guy talking about cannibalism, and they might have a huge rap sheet of other people doing the same. So you never know when that tipping point is, and it's just important to document everything like this that happens. Well, I think so too. And it just, For me personally, and this is just a personal thing, I would really have my conscience cleared if I knew, well, hey, I said that guy was weird. If you would have listened to me, we could have helped prevent this. And so from a personal aspect, I just think reporting it would make me feel better to know that I'm at least trying to make that record. And think for me also, this is why this podcast is so important, because I feel like we're helping spread the word that it's important, maybe even critical, like ultra critical to help these people seek help, right? Someone like Kevin, I really felt like would have benefited from intervention. And I feel like if you report it before they act out and hurt someone, you might actually be saving their life. And in this instance, it could have saved Jamie Rose's life because there was a lot of people that knew zombie Kevin, as they called him, was talking about weird stuff and was acting really, really bizarre. And they, you know, they all knew about the blog. Almost everybody in his life knew about that blog. And that concerns me. And you're right, LaDonna, using the example that you gave of just in that coworker scenario, if somebody had reported that to their supervisor, can you imagine how Kevin would have felt if his supervisor sat him down and said, hey, buddy, you can't talk about cooking and eating people here at work. It's possible that Kevin's never had an authority figure tell him that these things aren't okay. Exactly. And I also think that I put myself in the supervisor's role because I have people that work for me in my day job, quote unquote. And if somebody came to me and said, hey, you know, employee A over here is talking about cooking organs of humans, and this is creeping me out. I would go to that employee and say, hey, I need to know what's going on with you. Why are you talking about this? And do you really think it's okay? And then I can require them as their supervisor to stop talking about it and potentially get some help and to talk them through it and to better understand it. And then if they just said, hey, I really want to kill and cook somebody, I'm going to be calling the police because that's my job. And that all would have been sparked just from somebody who he was talking to if they would have taken an action. It's just so important to take action in those little micro moments. You just never know. And it's just like what I teach my kid. Don't keep secrets. Don't Mm -hmm. do that. When you see something that's wrong, tell somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that after hearing this episode, our listeners will take a stand for Jamie Rose. I mean, she was only 10 years old and she was murdered by a fetisher. And you can take a stand by visiting our website at deepdarksecretspodcast.com and sign our petition. We created that petition so we could build an army that will demand, demand that this country strengthen our obscenity laws 
So please take the time to go to the website and fill that out. Do it for Jamie Rose. Do it for all the other victims that died at the hands of these death fetishers. And it matters for you to sign that petition. It matters for us to be able to show that there are people that care about this. And the more signatures we can get on that petition, the better case we have when we are communicating with lawmakers. So please help us out in that way because we are calling in and envisioning a world where people can't write blogs like this, where people can't go onto a cannibal forum and tell people about how they're going to cook other people. That's the world that I want to live in, a place where those things are not allowed to exist. Same. We've got to put a stop to it and we can't do it without the help of our listeners. Absolutely. So we're inviting you to join us in those efforts and be a part of shutting down this death fetish industry. Keep listening in. Please share our podcast with anybody that you think might be interested, anybody that you think that could help in a unique way. Send them to us. We're very responsive with people in our social media accounts, our our email accounts, our website. So Go ahead and keep gathering more people and we'll keep this momentum going. And of course, just keep tuning in every week and paying attention to what's going on here during this battle against death fetish pornography, violent pornography. And just remember to keep being a light out there in your community and to keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.